from the WGN Skyline Studio. WGN Radio presents a conversation. I want to make one thing perfectly clear. A dialogue. What are you prepared to do? An astute debate. Everything that's in the law. And a peek behind the curtain of politics. And then what are you prepared to do? I think Chicago is not only the center of the country, I think it's the center of the world. Don't tread on them. Where did this statement come from? This is the Sunday Spin. Your host is the Chicago Tribune's Rick Pearson. Good Sunday morning, everyone. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. and Welcome to this edition of the Sunday Spin for November the 10th, 2019. Welcome to our weekly look at the world of politics and policy as we take you from City Hall to the White, to the White House with the State House in between. Time to grab that Sunday paper, get that hot cup of coffee, and we'll do our best to get your week off to a great start. And it's great to have Don Kleppen in this morning. we got uh, Dave and Andy here out at the great uh, Dean Richards Tree Time uh, Spectacular that'll be on at 9 o'clock this morning. But Don's in the newsroom to keep us up to date on everything. Good morning, Rick. Uh, and thank you for that weather forecast, too. Yeah, uh, I wish I could say Yeah, just otherwise. keep it coming. Well, I, so, of course, now it was temperate this morning oh yeah yeah this morning and you know yesterday i was i was out in rockford but it was uh it was kind of a beautiful day i mean it was clear skies and sunny and well i I thought it was temperate and i'm glad it was temperate because i realized that the uh, zipper on my heavy coat is broken oh man perfect timing right it's brutal. Uh, it's uh, kind of an, that qualifies for an emergency fix, I think. I, you know, it's I've been messing with it all morning, and it's I, I can't figure it out. And you know, zippers are cheap these days. That's true. It's not like the old days of. I, I'll admit this is not the most expensive coat in the world. Uh, I, I really, it's one of those where I get I get a lot of grief from folks about how ugly the coat is you know, okay you know what though you, you don't want to go for broke with one of those canadian goose oh no no things, right no nobody wants that's, that that's ridiculous i still think they look like cta operators they do i think the same thing i always want to approach them yeah every time i see that it's like i want to hold out my venture card or something right but right obviously they don't need my venture card if they can afford one of those uh one of those jackets well if you yeah and if you wave your venture card you, you get to complain about the cta <laughs> yeah. I'm okay with the cta yeah. i'm okay with that but i i, I don't I, I don't care really what it what the jacket looks like as long as it keeps you warm absolutely that's the important thing because it's me inside the coat that matters it's right. not the uh, function or yeah. fashion and frank quite frankly when the weather is kind of garbage who's looking for fashion no, not me. I'm not. I'm looking for warmth. Yeah, I'm looking to there. get out of the snow and everything else. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm I'm a little frustrated about hearing the forecast, but I we all knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. It's inevitable. And uh, actually, I saw last week early predictions of uh, measurable snowfall coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it's the thing is is that it's cold enough uh, afterwards where it should stick around for a few days. Yeah, that's. Uh, but what time is the rain starting today? Well, it's it seems that that's not going to come until the late afternoonish, um, and then that turns to snow tonight. So at least for the day today, during football and stuff, it should stay clear. Because I'm thinking, you know, for the football game, because 
there might not be any other reason to watch it than to see how the weather plays havoc with the Bears <laughs> and the Lions. <laughs> yeah, some good snowy football would be cool. Yeah, because, boy, the Bears are almost unwatchable. They're struggling. It, more than struggling. Yeah. I, I, I will say, though, some luck that I was just reading is that reports are that uh, Matt Stafford's a game-time decision. He may not play. Really? Yeah. Now, that changes the dynamics. Totally. Totally. Because, I mean, without him, they're, you know, a backup quarterback, the, the sting is taken right out of that offense i think oh exactly huh very interesting i didn't know stafford was questionable so yeah a back injury i believe they say he's been kind of it's you know, struggling that. with it mm-hmm. hmm. well there's the hope. there's yeah there's hope there's hope <laughs> or, mixed in with a with a grim forecast or do we throw chase daniel in Ooh, that's the question see how the first half goes i think uh i think yeah if they're if people are clamoring for daniel then you should you might as well put him in because, yeah, what else do we got here? I, I mean, I don't mean to be on the bandwagon against Trubisky, but it's just not its not impressive. No, and I think, you know, now we're more than halfway through year three with the guy. It's just you, you think, you figure that you've kind of seen what you're going to see from him. Well, you would, and granted, he had to learn a different bit of a scheme with uh, Nagy as coach, but mm-hmm. still, I just... Uh, frustrating frustrating right. yeah about as frustrating as seeing the blackhawks lose last night in overtime yeah the shootout right. um well but they were winning two to nothing oh that's pr- that's horrible yes and gave up uh, two third period goals to tie it up and then they went to the four on four and that didn't work and then we went to the shootout and uh i mean we got a point uh but still Five, seven, and four. We have we are tied with, I believe, one other team for the most uh, overtime losses at, at four, uh, which are always hard to stomach. The overtime losses. Well, and they call them a loser point too, kind of thing. You know, it's like a participation medal. It, it does count in the standings. Right, right. And at least they do give you. That's kind of nice. They give you something for losing, even in the NHL sometimes, as opposed to like like in the NFL, a loss is just a loss. Yeah, but you know, it, 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 there's a lot of teams that will play uh, desperation to get that point. Yeah, that's true. Rather than trying to wrap up the game in, in regulation. Mm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, very frustrating. And I thought, it, you know, here it was nice because it was a 6 o'clock game, so I'd be able to watch the game before, right. I, before I had a crash. And that's how I get rewarded for uh, staying up late is uh, getting to see that overtime loss. Right. Crawford played great, but uh, shootout. Uh, just not his thing. Yeah, and I now the, I heard the Penguins lost Crosby too. I think during that game, didn't they? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. I'm not sure what the extent was, but mm. yeah. Uh, and now we have got an original six matchup tonight at the United Center. Yeah, the Maple Leafs and uh, old time hockey. <laughs> that's right. That's that's, that's why I, that's why I put on my CCM sweater. That's great. Yeah, this yeah. This is you the got old it. school hockey with the laces. <laughs> Yeah. On, the, on the sweater and the whole jersey yes Love indeed it. yes indeed so i don't know we're, we're we're close to 500 i feel if we can get to 500 then we can start making some progress here in the schedule but yeah um it's just 
boy, it's just been frustrating. It's rough. Uh, you know what, though? I guess one positive you might take, like overtime losses, as frustrating as they are, they're in the games, right? Like they they could go the other way. Oh, yeah. Well, that's if you think about it, those are four games they lost by one goal. Yeah. So they're competitive, which is you know always preferable. Yeah, and and but for one goal, mm-hmm. uh, you know they're they're nine and seven is really what it what, what the way to look at it. Yeah. So and you know so a couple more games go. You know it's a longest long enough season. Start figuring it out. Yeah, but when you've got other teams that are already off to a good start. Yeah, in double digit wins. Yeah, and, uh, it's hard to catch up. I mean, the good news is we don't have double digit losses. Right. That's. But uh, you're still sitting about the bottom, bottom six right now. Mm. That's not good. No, not good. But uh, let's uh, let's get things back on the on a high note at home. These back to back games can be killers sometimes. But uh, let's let's go Blackhawks. Yeah, and that's uh, puck drop is at six with John and Troy. That's right. So uh, you can catch it all right here on WGN. Well, Don is here to keep us up to date on all the news, and he's also got the latest sports. Producer Casera is here to field your phone calls. We're at 312-981-7200. You can text us at 312-981-7200. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Sunday Spin. We're on Twitter at at symbol Sunday Spin. Engineer Bob is already looking for turkey dressing recipes. Remember, you can find all of our shows on WGNRadio.com. You can also get our podcasts at iTunes by searching for my name, Rick Pearson. We're going to take a quick break on this Sunday morning. You're listening to the Sunday Spin on WGN. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. I just glanced over at a monitor to see uh, my Kamernick over on uh, the old Channel 9 and a lot of blue on that screen for uh, about 8.30 tomorrow night. And uh, we're looking at here in the city three to four inches uh, north uh, and northwest uh, up to five plus inches of snow. So just want you to be prepared folks that's uh well i'm out uh, hunting for a new coat and uh yes in response to a texter no it was not a green bay packers coat that was falling apart it was uh, i could say it's a mitch uh, trubisky coat that was falling apart but i'm not going to say that either just an ugly ugly coat so it's going to be ugly coat shopping time uh later today Time for our uh, start our spin through the last week in national politics. And, of course, we start with the latest in the House Democratic-led impeachment proceedings against President Donald Trump. In fact, uh, the president even made light of impeachment uh, when the world champion Washington Nationals visited the White House. Throughout this season, the Nationals captured the hearts of baseball fans across the region and across the country. America fell in love with the Nats Baseball. They just fell in love with Nats baseball. That's all they wanted to talk about. That and impeachment. (laughs) I like Nats baseball much more. Yes, he likes Nats baseball much more. Uh, The Senate is where an impeachment trial would be held if the House votes for articles of impeachment. But Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, the Republican from Kentucky, says... uh, 
don't expect too much of a trial. Pretty sure how it's likely to end. If it were today, I, I don't think there's any question, it would not lead to a removal. So the question is, is how long does the Senate want to uh, take? How long do the presidential candidates want to be here on the floor of the Senate instead of in Iowa and New Hampshire? And all of these other uh, related issues that may be going on at the same time. It's very difficult uh, to ascertain you know, how long this takes. I'd be surprised if it didn't end the way the two uh, previous ones did with the president not re- being removed from office. Now, McConnell's comments prompted Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer of New York to criticize McConnell and Republicans for their support of Trump. Schumer points out that in an impeachment proceeding, the Senate acts as a jury and that they should impartially weigh the facts and not be swayed by their loyalty to the president among Republicans. Here's Chuck Schumer. In the Senate, we're beginning to get that germ, that germ of coming to conclusions before we hear all the facts, before the trial occurs, that germ is spreading, that nasty germ. Here, a senior member said yesterday that they'll refuse to read any transcripts from the House investigation because they've written the whole process off as a bunch of BS. Using the taxpayer dollars much-needed foreign aid, an important part of our foreign policy tool to gain an advantage on, the political, on a political rival, if that's true. That is BS. <laughs> our Senate Judiciary Chairman knows better. That's uh, Senate Democratic Leader Chuck Schumer. Uh, White House and Republicans beginning to plot strategy for how to deal with the impeachment inquiry proceedings, which are going to be starting on Wednesday in a public hearing uh, by the House Intelligence Committee, uh, looking at calling, wanting to call witnesses, including Hunter Biden, uh, the son of the vice president, uh, looking for ways that uh, in the closed session hearings uh, to try to cast doubts Uh, on the witnesses or to show whether they have an apparent bias. Uh, In advance of these hearings, uh, the House Intelligence Committee released transcripts of those closed-door testimonies. That included the testimony of former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Vojanovic. Uh, This is uh, House Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff describing her testimony. You will see in Ambassador Yovanovitch's testimony what a dedicated public servant she is. Uh, This is someone who served the country with distinction for decades. It is someone who also is one of the first witnesses to this irregular back channel that the president established with Rudy Giuliani uh, and the damage that it was doing to America's national security uh, and foreign policy interests. How it was working at in opposition, not in support of U.S. policy objectives. Ambassador Yovanovitch had a well-earned reputation as a fighter of corruption. Um, And she was working with Ukraine to get Ukraine to fight corruption. And so what does this irregular back channel sanctioned by the president do? It seeks to remove someone fighting corruption in Ukraine. 
by employing a vicious smear campaign in which the State Department at the uh, highest levels acknowledged had no merit whatsoever. Um, that smear campaign uh, orchestrated by this irregular channel was successful in removing a U.S. ambassador. That's the House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff. So what good will now moving to public hearings do? No, Republicans are backing impeachment. Well, here's what Schaumburg Democratic Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy told MSNBC. The public hearings have two purposes. One, to educate people about what we've learned. And then two, to allow the American people for themselves to evaluate the credibility of these witnesses. I can tell you that privately, uh, when I was in the room uh, listening to Ambassador Taylor and I talked to my Republican counterparts, they found him to be credible. Um, the question is uh, whether uh, the audience uh, at home will, will, will find the same. That's Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, Democrat from Schaumburg, explaining what to look for on those public hearings. You're listening to The Sunday Spin on WGN. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's The Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson the Chicago Tribune. Um, the Trump re-election campaign is out with a new digital ad. And it also sounds a theme uh, about impeachment that Trump supporters should believe that Democrats are trying to mount a coup. Here's a portion of the ad. They want to erase your vote like it never existed. They want to erase your voice and they want to erase your future. But they will fail because in America, the people rule again. With your help, your devotion, your drive, we are going to keep on working, we are going to keep on fighting, and we are going to keep on winning, 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 winning. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. So uh, get ready to keep hearing that kind of thematic play out in the days and weeks ahead. Well, joining me now here in the WGN Skyline studio is Democratic State Representative Bob Rita from Blue Island. Representative, thank you so much for joining me this morning. No problem. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, I, know, I know you appreciate the lovely view of uh, the river and the uh, lake and Navy Pier, and uh, it's kind of a good way to get your day started. It's a nice way to start. This <laughs> first time being here since, the, I said, the last time we met, we're, we were at the old studio. The old Tribune Tower on Michigan Avenue. Well, and this way, too, we can, we can see the weather front coming in for all the snow that was <laughs> going to way. yeah is going to envelop us here uh but uh we'll get through it we'll get through it i wanted to have you on because of a for a couple of reasons uh this week uh following the uh, veterans day holiday we resume the uh, final three days of the fall veto session in the illinois house We've got number of things to talk to you about <laughs> that but also i want to talk to you about a concern more uh more local more closer to home for you but also for the south suburbs and that's the closure of uh, the metro south uh, health center and that i don't I, i'm surprised it hadn't gotten more attention well it it it, it locally it it did um you know we come out of the session in and we arrived with the news that Metro South was going to close, and and 
uh, it's almost a thousand jobs that were lost at this facility. It's actually currently closed now, so they, they right. have to prove it'll close. Um, as we were talking be, uh, before we went on the air, you know, it started with Westlake, now Metro South. I believe this is going to be a major issue. That it's the, just the beginning of hospital closures throughout the state, but in particular in the South Side, um, this has put a, a, a major hole. In in healthcare, in particular, like with the emergency room. Well, yeah, and and I I noticed a story about you know the the first responders saying you know well it it shouldn't impact that much to go to other uh, hospital facility emergency rooms for ambulance service in the region, but they were also saying well that's a best case scenario. Um, because ignoring things like, uh, you know, there's a lot of rail traffic uh, that comes through. And, and that is a, a major obstacle on the whole south side, whether it's the right. south side of Chicago, south, but particularly in the south suburbs. Um, there was almost 50,000 emergency room visits. And, and to me, that... 50,000 in a year. In a year. And who's going to, you know, how is that going to get absorbed in the system that's down there? Um, when you take a look at, you know, you have Christ... Little Company of Mary, Roseland, and Ingalls around there. That, that's a that's a large number to absorb, especially when a number of them hospitals go on bypass. Which is when, With, when they're not accepting inpatient, you know, uh, ambulance services in. So depending on where you're routed, it could be from as high as almost twenty minutes for a, a transport of uh, an ambulance. Is there a larger picture here about some of these for-profit hospitals, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, you see uh, you see them uh, like out in the west suburbs, where you, you, they buy, they acquire whatever, and then it's shut it, down. It, well, they move in, they look, you know, take the parts out what they want. It, 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 to me, this has started. You, you see it with the for-profit and and. Um, I could see this coming down the line with with other hospitals, whether for profit or non for profit, in in something we need to look at. And and I've dug deep in. As I said, I've no been no healthcare expert on this. It's, right, it's landed in my lab. And looking at all the duplicated of services and what these services in these other hospitals, particularly like in the Southland, um, you start have to start looking at, it, at transforming what these facilities and how we serve. The community best and and to me it's a beginning of a a major problem that's going to come and we need to get out front of this just to to not have like what we have here in blue island you know a closed facility and it's closed facility and lose a thousand jobs yes uh i was curious about i mean the state had the health facilities planning board and it was supposed to be kind of you know, as an altruistic way of looking, I don't know, government and altruism. I, I, it's early on a Sunday morning, but but an altruistic way of of effectively planning so that there wasn't an overbuilding of uh, or, or duplication of services, those kinds of things. Then, of course, we saw the Health Facilities Planning Board uh, become uh, basically uh, a corrupt organization. Uh, through Rod Blagojevich's administration. Well, and then since then, it, it's like they have. Uh, it, it appears they have real no role as long as certain well, that's criteria is met. They yeah. have. So, so what's the 
the you know, what is the the function of this if you're I mean, not looking the, at the stats the yeah i mean they were supposed to be like a, almost a regulatory body that said yes uh, you know yes or no on uh, new hospital hospital expansion service expansion those kinds of things yes and and what i see and what i've experienced through this it was just you know meet certain rec- criteria and it's a rubber stamp uh uh, it didn't really matter. They didn't look at the the big picture that I thought it was uh, the agency was designed to do, and so we went from you know when, when it first started to to, what, <laughs> to the, the dark side, the, the dark side <laughs> to what, what is their function and what are they doing? So, well, what what becomes of Metro South? Well, right, currently, right now, we passed the bill out of the uh, uh, the house to create a freestanding emergency center. Um, Locked in, so there was funding that was put for transformation of, of facilities. The the bill locks in the funding for a couple of years so that it would be attractive for someone to come in. to For open, a provider. To, for, to set up a, a freestanding emergency room and look at other services that the community would need. So if you look at it like a phase one, phase one, get the emergency room up and running to address the, the, the high number of emergency room visits that it did receive. Um, it puts the funding in there so that uh, you know get them up and running and and to provide uh, 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 an, an entity to do this and then and during that time they could look at what other services that the community needs and ancillary that, services yes. and so I believe that's a start of transforming um, so that bill sits in the Senate um, Senate Bill one fifteen um, Senator Jones has that and so this could be the start of bringing Metro South back online. Uh, fill in that void, and then taking a look at the other uh, areas and what services they provide. Do we know if that bill is enough to indeed attract some kind of health care provider to provide those emergency services? Well, you know, that's a, a, it, right now there's nothing. Right, and there's no you know right no authority to allow the from my understanding you have to allow the authority for the free emergency center, uh, freestanding emergency center, and then uh, that money was allocated to the hospital. So I looked at why leave that money locked into that hospital because we voted on that. We put that that money was, that would have been there if the hospital had been fulfilling up and its, running, up and running, yes. right? And so uh, locked that money in where it was intended to go. And to use it for this purpose. Now, I, there's there's a number of people in talks of of, of coming in to to do this plan. Um, you know, everyone said it's not going to be a full service hospital. When you look at the amount of beds it had, you know, 314 bed hospital, it's just not going to be that. But let's start with the basic, the emergency room, which, uh, and, and then go from there. And and. Instead of taking that money and having it distributed somewhere else, it was, you know, for that community, for that uh, hospital. So, well, and as you say, you know, fifty thousand emergency calls a year, and even though, okay, maybe some of them aren't truly emergencies, that's still fifty thousand calls, and yes. uh, to to see them subdivided out. We'll take half of it, twenty five thousand. It's a, still a large number, you know, and and so. It, it, to me, that's the the starting. It should be the starting point. Uh, working with our staff, this is the direction and the path that we've taken, and uh, so I, I believe it's a the right one. So that's one bill to look at in the in the, <laughs> one bill among several. Yes, in the fall veto session, we're speaking with Democratic State Representative Bob Rita from Blue Island. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Mm. 
Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune, here in the WGN Skyline studio with Democratic State Representative Bob Rita of Blue Island. We've been talking about uh, legislation that's pending, House-passed legislation pending in the State Senate to try to restore uh, some emergency health services at the now-closed Metro South Medical Center in Blue Island. That's one bill in the veto session. And as uh, Representative Rita points out, it's a misnomer, perhaps, to use the term fall veto session, even though that's how we know it in the legislative parlance, because I think there were seven vetoes. The governor signed like 600 bills, and there are only seven vetoes, and I think two of them were duplicates. <laughs> uh, so it has allowed a lot of issues to the carry over from the spring session that ended in may and as well as allowed for new issues and you have been kind of the point person on gaming issues in springfield and obviously a lot of talk and concern about what about the chicago casino and i want to ask you this because and i've raised this with others um Mayor Lightfoot says the gaming board's study of taxation, city state taxation of this casino, uh, that gaming board uh, consultant study says nobody would come in. Yes. Now, why not still let out an RFP and and just just to see what the marketplace says? And wouldn't you learn more, perhaps, from the marketplace? You're not under any obligation for that request for proposal to fulfill that well and and it has been the number one question asked by my colleagues uh okay so i'm not alone in this no. okay and and you know this started with uh here for a number of years we talked about is a bill gonna pass is it not gonna pass right. we finally at the uh, <laughs> and then a bill finally passes we, we we passed the bill um the the feasibility study was put in the bill for chicago at the request of the mayor at the end um and because there was concerns of uh, from the beginning saying the way it was structured would this uh uh actually get up and running and the the fe- feasibility came back there was a, a sites that were were selected um and it, they're saying it's not going to be feasible to to build or no one's going to come and build but that's the number one question everyone keeps asking me which i've asked and really haven't got a a real answer saying well we can't put that out there because then they don't you know there has not been a real answer on that and and so that is one of the obstacles we're facing of uh, trying to as we come back to we're trying to put a a language together so that it, at the city's request what they're looking at based on that feasibility study and but that would change the taxing it would change the taxing so what are we looking at there's been a number of uh uh proposals going forward we've been working diligently with this i've been working with the city of chicago uh the senate and and um the governor's office to try to figure out it what if is there a pathway and what is that pathway no we need to do it right we can't come back and and put something on and then and then in January, we're back saying, well, here, uh, we need to fix this now. And so it, taking a slower approach to make sure we do this right if we're going to put a, a bill on the board. So what is the tax structure now? Is it one-third, one-third? Well, it, it has its uh, a traditional taxing, and then it goes to the, the one-third, one-third, one-third on the back end. And it was that was to, so that we would dre- generate enough money to address the pension system in, in the city, the police and fire 
it was it was set up like the video poker, you know, uh, the 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 the, the one third, one third, one third. Um, they're saying that that along with this seventy five percent reconciliation or holdback fee, um, no operator will come in. I started digging into this reconciliation fee, but basically, a reconciliation started. There's a fee based on the highest. Uh, 12 months of the three years after an operation that that would be a fee that would be paid over two years um and that would essentially would be the licensing fee Mm -hmm. um as you look back at these uh like the 10th license they were bit people bid for the so when you're looking how do you how do you set a price on a fee for this um because it's not a bid it's not a bid because and 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 they're saying both the third tax and the the uh, reconciliation, reconciliation fee is not, uh, you know, no no one's going to come in. But to go back to your question, I don't have that answer. Why not an RFP? Uh, does anything move on this? We're trying to put something together. I mean, well, again, I mean, it, it, because you, we're again reopening this can of worms, and and that's what I explained to the mayor. I've had a number of talks, and we've been talking a lot, and, and I said because so, there have to be other uh, interests wanting a little. A break on the taxes. I have a list of everybody calling. So soon, you know, that was always our issue in the past. Soon as you open up the bill, or they think we're going to open up the bill, um, everyone's you know has their request. Whether they didn't get it in May, or they they want to get something new, or they don't want someone else to get something, and it it really opens up. And I call it Pandora's box, and and it's going to be an issue. But enough that we don't do anything well it, it, here my, again we're we're talking the veto session she didn't include money in her budget for the city from casino uh, with the deficit i mean why not just do it in january lower vote numbers and those kind of well things. and their request is to try to get this done so i'm gonna work and diligently work we've been working all weekend and and trying to figure out a pathway but we need to make sure we do it right and, and and if not, we we revisit this back in January, and to make it right. Uh, also, obviously, the mayor looking for that graduated uh, transfer tax. <laughs> I, I I can tell by your response because that's what I'm hearing as well. Well, yes, and, and there's there's some setbacks here. I view it this way: we're she's asked for a, a number of things to help try to balance this budget or put this budget forward for the Chicago. The, the bill, in my view, goes back to the city. The city has to vote for this, the alderman. It's not like we're going to go down there and, and just make this vote. It gives the authority to the, the council to do this. And so I may be a little more easier on this aspect. Well, I was going to ask, and I've asked people about that, too, is that you're not directly voting to create this uh, graduated transfer tax, that it's an authorization for the city council to vote for that. So is there enough distance there, given everything that went on in the spring session uh and and you know all of the tax issues and fee issues and those mm-hmm. kinds of is there enough distance for people to vote for that i i think you know the way i look at you know because it's going to go to the council it's going to work you know they they have to get 26 votes for this and so um out of the number of requests i believe you know if this is i'm i'm going to support this for for the city, I, as I not only represent the south suburbs, I right. represent the, the the half of it, uh, the south side. Um, 
but it has caused uh, you know there's a number of oh, agita. Yes, yes. <laughs> there's where there's the money's going to go. Where you know, and it's yes. It, but again, I would go back to it's authorizing the city council to do that. So uh, you know, the aldermen are going to be directly involved. It's not like we're just going to pass this uh, transfer tax and. You know, magic, it magic yes. occurs. That's Democratic State Representative Bob Rita, Democrat from Blue Island. Representative, as always, thank you so much for joining well, me this morning. Thank you for having me. And we'll uh, be watching your activities in Springfield <laughs> this week. It'll be an interesting three <laughs> Don't days. Don't pick up the phone. <laughs> this is the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Once again, here's Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Good Sunday morning and welcome to the second hour of your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. And joining me in studio is a good friend of the program, Democratic State Senator Rob Martwick from Chicago. Senator, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Rick, always a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, Again, uh, we've been talking about issues with the closing of the fall veto session, uh, three days uh again veto being a uh, veto session being somewhat of a misnomer since there really aren't any vetoes to deal with right uh but um still a lot of things on the table but all of this is somewhat clouded by uh another issue of uh ethics of uh uh we have representative uh luis arroyo who uh on the opening of veto session, while you all were in Springfield, he was in federal court uh, on uh, bribery charges. The governor uh, at a Democratic, uh, Cook County Democratic Party cocktail fundraiser at the Hilton uh, basically said, you know, shame on us. we got to clean up our act. Um, it was kind of hard to hear him because it was a cocktail party. Yeah. Not a lot of people were listening. Uh, is anybody listening in Springfield? Um, I, I think we are. It, it certainly is uh, the talk amongst the legislature about what's been going on, the the situations that some of our colleagues, and I say that term loosely, you almost hate to <laughs> admit that they're your colleagues, have been uh, engaging in. Uh, it, it, it's, it you know... When these sorts of scandals break, um, bribery and, and self-dealing and extortion, it, 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 it casts a pall upon the entire uh legislative process and, and democracy it, it really erodes trust in people that government is is actually working for them and it's so horrible and i understand what governor pritzker's angst is because i share it it comes on the heels of a monumental year where after four years of gridlock we made so much progress and then to taint it to just when when you're just bringing it across the goal line to taint it with these scandals, it's an awful feeling. So I know that people in Springfield are interested. I think that this, um, you know, the the low hanging fruit, the easy one, is this idea that uh, elected officials can lobby another form of government that's not the one that they serve on. So legislators supposedly lobbying the city council or the county board uh, or county board members coming down and lo- lobbying the, the legislature, that is that makes no sense whatsoever that that is permitted. It makes no sense whatsoever that's permitted, and I think we will address that. At a minimum. Yes. 
I mean, I, I because there are other issues here too that you know Republicans have uh, talked about a package that includes uh, expanding the information in economic disclosure forms. That's a good one too. Uh, you know, um, I, I've a long. Uh, <laughs> I got into a, a, an issue where a, a reporter. Uh, pointed out that i had missed something on a disclosure form and i i tried to point out most of the people that have to fill these out don't even know what they're asking for right we have to mm-hmm. sit down with lawyers and go what does this mean um economic disclosure forms should be simple and they should be easy to read and if, if the legislators don't understand what they're supposed to be putting in them how is a citizen the whole point of disclosure is that a citizen can look it up and say let me see what his conflicts of interest might be or his financial interests are it should be easy and digestible for them to read as well so you think we will do something? Or I hope is it, so. Or is I, it- I, yeah, and oh, I believe that we will. I mean, there is a, a strong will in the legislature, especially. Well, I think there's a desire to try to get out in front of some of this, as you yeah. as you mentioned. Right. You know, Democrats own they own Springfield. Right. And after what you had with that legislative session, and you know, from and, and you hear you have a capital bill. Everybody was singing the praise of capital bill, and then you have the Senate Transportation Committee chairman uh, under invest- federal investigation. Um, I, I mean, I even asked Pritzker if this was uh, concerns about uh, the the vote on the progressive income tax. If that that if there isn't a fear there of this kind of stuff tainting because certainly republicans and, op- and opponents are going to portray it as okay this is this means three and a half billion dollars in additional tax revenue going to springfield you going to trust these guys yeah well and i'm i'm sure look the the opposition to the uh to the fair taxes well they'll look they'll yeah. they'll they'll use anything they can to beat it so i won't be surprised that's part of politics um but what I would say is that uh, it's definitely a concern, right? It's definitely a concern, um, but it is not. Uh, it is not one party that owns this problem. It's both parties. Um, certainly, the people who have been under scrutiny have come from uh, my party. But in, and it's not a horrible thing. In the, the the nature of the legislature is we deal with problems when they're a problem. Right. So when ethics is not, you know, when when we're just going along and nobody's in trouble and, and you know, who, who knows? I mean, I don't know what Louis Arroyo is doing, didn't know what he was doing, wasn't aware that he was so tied in with these companies and and acting on behalf of them. Um, and, and so when the the enforcement arm of our government comes and says, hey, these guys are cheating, they're doing something wrong. Well, then it's a problem. And now we know to address it. And I think that we will get to that work and, and pass some legislation. I, I, I know I'll be working on it. But now we have this issue of picking his successor. Yeah, it's an issue. Yeah. And he's called the meeting because right. he has the weighted vote of the as committeeman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cook County Democratic Executive Committee said step down. Clear he's not stepping down. Yeah, it's a it's a real problem. So, I mean, the law says that um, when a, a legislative seat is vacant, that the the committeeman from the party that the person who just left is from. So in this case, Louis Arroyo is a Democrat. Then they they meet and they cast a weighted vote to appoint his replacement. Um, and in this instance, he's not only the disgraced former state representative accused of bribery, he's also the Democratic committeeman who has the largest chunk of votes to appoint his replacement. And that's a real problem. Um, you know, there are lots of uh, proposals that are being offered. Uh, the bottom line is there is no easy answer to how you fix the uh, 
the the oh, f- filling an open seat. I just went through that process. I was appointed to fill right. an open Senate seat. Um, you know, people say, well, you should have a special election. Can you imagine in the Northwest side we, that we just had a special election for my seat, the Senate seat, because we didn't want to make an appointment there. And then a couple months later, oh, we got to hurry up and have another special election. The cost... Um, the fact that it, it would really diminish the democratic process. I'm not saying that the appointment doesn't, but no one's going to come out and vote in these things. So you're going to have a very small handful of people choosing a, a, an elected official at an extremely high cost. So there are no easy answers, but definitely this appointment process is problematic in this instance. Um, well, we, in this instance, I mean, you've said you, you're not going to participate. Yeah. And, and so the way I'm doing this and, and what I mean is. So, yeah, that's why I'm asking. So, yeah. Yeah, so I've I've had many conversations with my fellow Democratic committeemen in this district, and uh, I am doing my best to convince them, and I believe that, that we will have a consensus, I hope, uh, uh, the meeting is coming up this Friday, um, that if he participates, we all walk out of the room, right? Um, if he's there and he says he's going to cast votes, we all walk away, because he doesn't have the 50, he has the largest chunk, but he doesn't have 50% plus one, and he can't make an appointment without it. Um, we believe that he should, I believe, and I'm, I'm working on convincing my colleagues, that he should not participate in this process, uh, especially given the nature of the charges against him, that they're directly related to his service as a state representative. He should not handpick his successor. I've heard, well, that disenfranchises his voters. And I say, yes, but I didn't do that. He did that. He made this choice. And so uh, we were talking beforehand about how Blagojevich appointed Roland Burris, and it was this temporary placeholder until the election. There's much talk that maybe that's what needs to get done. We put someone in who serves for the next year, can serve that district under the agreement that they don't run, and that in the primary, which comes up in March just March in a few months, right. um, then the electorate can choose amongst the candidates who are filing, and there are many. So, Is there a placeholder out there? I don't know. I mean, you know, that's... I, I know, think, it's a speculative right. thing. And right everyone, uh, the candidates who come out, um, you know, the, the, there's a million of them. I don't think anyone really intends to say, oh, I'll just do it for a year and then I'll go away, right? Um, so it would be a different conversation to say, would you be willing to serve for a year, but agree not to run so that there can be an open election process and you're not given an unfair advantage by having been appointed. We're speaking with State Senator Rob Martwick. I'm still getting used to saying that. State Senator Rob Martwick, Democrat from Chicago. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune, here in the WGN Skyline studio with Democratic State Senator Rob Martwick. We're talking about uh, local issues, obviously, mm. but uh, let's let's talk about uh, the resuming of the session. One of the things I was curious about was after the teachers' strike here in Chicago, longer than a lot of people wanted it to be, but I was curious because for years you have been an advocate of having an elected school board in Chicago. Chicago is the only school system, public school system in the state that does not have an elected board of education. Part of the 1995 changes enacted by a Republican legislature and a Republican governor at the request of Mayor Daley. Yep. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, you've long advocated this. Is there a better chance now that, I mean, it's passed the House when you were a House member. Yeah. It's passed the House again. Uh, now you're a senator. Uh, that's always been the roadblock. Yeah. Um, 
four times. The last time it passed with 110 votes. I'm glad you're counting. Yeah. Um, there is widespread support, bipartisan support, uh, Chicago support, suburban support, downstate support, rural support. Like everyone believes that this is the right path forward for the Chicago public schools. I, I, obviously, in the past, a couple of people who have greater influence than the rest of us in the legislature have been able to bottle that up. Um, certain mayors, certain mayors, yes, and um, and including. Um, you know, Mayor Lightfoot, when she first came in, said, no, hold that bill up. And she stopped that bill's progress in the Senate. Uh, Senate President Cullerton said, I stopped the bill's progress at the request of the mayor. He admitted it, right? So, um, and these things happen. Um, she's a new mayor. She wants to weigh in on the process. I, I respect that. Uh, but as a result of the strike, as part of the negotiations of the strike, um, the C- Chicago Teachers Union accepted a longer contract they wanted a shorter contract they accepted a longer contract with less of a raise in it and they said but you you have to release your brick off of the elected school board bill and uh she agreed to that and there were statements from both the speaker which he hasn't been a problem he's always supported it and the senate president suggesting that uh in the spring session that the the bill for an elected representative school board will get the full legislative process it won't get tucked away in a committee to die um it will go through a full hearing process and should it pass at the committees it will get votes in both chambers and head to the governor's desk which i I don't see how that doesn't happen given the support that there is for it what about and 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 you know certainly it's not an issue or or uh a concern as some might say that you haven't heard about just you know that this would be a union controlled board uh you know that's all of those concerns have uh, been brought up and you know the the one thing is is that as you mentioned i've been working on it for five years on the elected school board bill and um when we crafted the structure of the bill it was designed to address concerns that people had right i didn't just say i didn't just pull some random structure out of my head i didn't say one size fits all and and make it the same structure as all the other school boards in the state i created a special uh structure that would hopefully deal with that issue um influence of outside money on elections is always a concern but especially in this this was the number one concern i heard is how do we make sure that we limit the influence of money on these elections and as far as I was concerned, uh, the best way to do that is by not creating an elected school board, but an elected representative school board where the school board representatives are elected from drawn districts in the area. And the smaller you draw the district, hence the more representatives you have on the board, the less the influence of money. And the more important it is that you're engaged and involved in your community and your neighbors know you and you can go out and knock on doors. The bigger the district, the less you have the ability to go out and knock on doors, the less people are going to know you, and the more important the influence of money. And that's why we came up with uh, 20 school board members, and I've heard a lot of concern about that. The mayor's voice concerned that it would be too unwieldy. But to me, it's I think that's where the discussion is going to lie in the spring, is what are the issues you really want to address, and if you don't like the way I'm addressing them, what's your, what's your, your idea for addressing that problem? Mine was very simple. Make it make small districts and let people be involved in their schools, involved in their LSCs and PTAs, know their neighbors, knock on doors, and that makes money a lot less influential. That's for spring. That'll uh, be in the spring session. Yeah. For the next few days, we have some Chicago issues. We sure do. Um, uh, now, uh, your colleague uh, in the House, Bob Rita, 
so he could he could probably support the authorization for the council to enact the real estate graduated real estate transfer tax um i'm not sure i hear a lot of support for that and we've of course seen members of the progressive more progressive faction of house democrats from the city stating their opposition that uh, originally the mayor had talked about money for uh, a variety of issues uh, coming from this transfer tax none of which would be there under her budget proposal right um does this get done i don't know i mean it you know typically these things you it's they're more binary, right? So right. the the people that whose ox is going to get gored are the people that are opposed to it. So typically we would see the realtors and the business community be opposed to this higher tax structure. That, that You know, them coming from the right end of the spectrum, when you turn around and you see that not only they are opposing it, but the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless is opposing it on the left, um, that, that means it's going to be a little bit more different when you're fighting on two fronts. Um, you know, I, I've talked to the city of Chicago. Um, I don't know if it's a good idea or a bad idea. I suppose we'll have some conversations about that this week. Uh, but I would be willing to certainly allow the city council the authorization to make that decision. The city of Chicago has got profound financial problems, and they need tools to be able to get out of their problems. I won't deny them the tools, but I, I think that politically they're going to have to answer to their business community and they're going to have to answer to the homeless community who was promised so much out of this initiative. That's Democratic State Senator Rob Martwick, Democrat from Chicago. Senator, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank, always a pleasure, Rick. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson here in the WGN Skyline studio. Joining me now on the phone is my Tribune colleague, Bill Ruthart. Bill's been in Iowa recently. Uh, I won't. I, he's in an undisclosed location right now, but it's not Iowa. And uh, But uh, he's been there writing and uh, doing some really great work, and I, and I want to talk to him about a couple of the stories that he wrote. Bill, thanks for joining me this morning. Good to be on, as always, Rick. Uh, so I was fascinated by uh, your story about Ellen Warren and that, you know, you spent some days on the road going to various events uh, where she spoke. Uh, you know, she is uh, arguably uh, the, the front runner or close to it, uh, given the way the Iowa political scene is, is, is mixing out. And... You know, here she has her signature Medicare for All program, and as you wrote, she's not really talking about it. Yeah, not at all. It was it was quite interesting. I mean, it, she's definitely uh, taken a lot of uh, heat from some of the other candidates in terms of not being uh, totally upfront about whether the middle class would pay uh, tax increases under her Medicare for All plan in the last debate. So she went about coming up with a specific funding plan unlike uh, Bernie Sanders, who is the other major contender who uh, favors Medicare for all. And so she comes out with this with this plan and, and insists that the uh, middle class won't uh, pay any tax increases as part of it, that it'll all, all be uh, on corporations and, and the uh, uber wealthy. But then she doesn't talk about it at all on the campaign trail. And I think what that's a reflection of is that it's not necessarily a, a winning issue in Iowa right now. Uh, and a lot of the polling shows that, that uh, while a good chunk of the Democratic electorate does favor Medicare for all, 
even more folks, uh, upwards of 90% favor uh, adding a public option uh, to Obamacare. And so I think that's part of what we're, we're seeing there on the ground in Iowa is that she'd rather talk about some of these other issues uh, rather than Medicare for all. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a conflicting issue and certainly one that kind of also kind of highlights that differentiation between uh, the progressive candidates versus the, the moderate camp and the, the concerns where you see uh, particularly among Democrats and, and trying to appeal to their traditional union allies where health care is a, a matter of uh, contractual uh, negotiation and uh, the argument that uh, you know auto workers those uh, larger unions that negotiate health care they come out with a pretty good deal their their members like that yeah that's right that's exactly uh there was a big uh union fish fry in cedar rapids while i was there and uh you know that was an audience that was heavily union and warren literally went through her entire uh agenda of you know uh, free college, canceling student debt, uh, universal child care, universal pre-care, even got into how much she would give historically black colleges and universities, yet made no mention of Medicare for all. And that's because uh, that you're right. A lot of those folks uh, negotiate for good health care. They like the plans. They want to keep them. In many cases, they they forwent, you know, higher pay for those benefits. And uh, that's why you see things like the National Firefighters Union endorsing uh, Joe Biden, because they like his approach on health care better. And so um, I think that's absolutely an issue for a lot of a lot of those folks uh, in organized labor uh, when it comes to health care. So do we have like an established now, you know, obviously not that you're the new all be all of Iowa, but, you know, you had a you went to the big, big, big uh, Democratic fundraiser, the former Jefferson Jackson uh, Day fundraising event, which is really kind of a can be make or break for candidates and do we have an established kind of tier of candidates as you see it yeah i think absolutely there's four candidates who have kind of separated themselves from the rest of the field and they are in no particular order elizabeth warren bernie sanders uh joe biden and uh mayor pete Buttigieg. um that was clear not only from the uh, the organizational showing at the dinner, but also in, in all of the recent polling in Iowa. Judge in particular is the one who's really had his numbers move. Uh, some of the more recent polls showing him as high as second place, one point behind Warren and a couple of different polls. He has uh, surpassed Joe Biden, uh, which is a reflection of uh, some moderate folks turning to him. But it, it remains extremely fluid, I, you know, in these polls. Uh, upwards of 60% of folks say they're, they picked the, who picked the candidate said they're willing to change their mind. So, uh, this is going to come down to the end out there. But the dinner was really a place to see not only whether they can give, you know, a soaring speech to inspire uh, Democrats, which I, I think Warren and, and Buttigieg, uh, were tops in that department, but it's also a chance to show what kind of organization they have. Uh, within their campaign, and turning out a ton of people uh, to a downtown arena in Des Moines uh, was a big part of that. And and Buttigieg, uh, I think, in some ways surprised folks with with by far the largest showing, filling up almost a quarter of the arena. And there was some, you know, talk of there's this barnstormers group or people flew in from out of state to support him. Uh, however, you want to slice it, the fact that his campaign was able to turn able to turn out those kinds of numbers. 
um, showed that you know he's growing in strength there. Warren uh, also had a very uh, very strong showing at the dinner as well, both in terms of the speech and the number of folks there. Biden, on the other hand, uh, bought tickets for six uh, upper deck sections of the arena that went empty. That his aides literally had fistfuls of these tickets that they couldn't give away uh, to get folks to sit in, that, in his section. So. Um, you know, it doesn't mean uh, Joe Biden can't win Iowa, but it's not necessarily a great sign for his campaign right now. And those are the kind of tea leaves you look for at a big event like that. Yeah, it's it's the energy factor. Exactly. And uh, there was, you know, a high level of enthusiasm for, uh, for Buttigieg and Warren and, and Sanders as well. Sanders, in typical uh, fashion, you know, held a march against greed outside the arena that drew about a thousand people, but then didn't buy any tickets for inside the arena. Uh, didn't view that as a good investment from his campaign. Uh, Buttigieg had uh, about 2,300 folks at a rally outside the arena before they all went outside. They're standing out there in the, in the pouring rain to hear a speech from him. Biden, it was more of a traditional uh, convention center ballroom that was like three-quarters of the way full, but not nearly uh, the level of excitement that we saw from uh, from some of the other campaigns. Biden folks also argue, though, that you know their base is more uh, lower-income folks uh, who maybe don't have the resources to drive across the state on a Friday and take off work to uh, cheer their candidate on. So, you know, there's all kinds of spin that goes on with these things, but uh, it was an interesting moment to kind of put a gauge on uh, how things stand out there. Well, and and I did like the line from, uh, I believe it was from uh, somebody from the firefighters about, you know, alleging uh, that uh, Buttigieg, uh, their people, you know, traveled in from in Indiana to, to, to support him, and uh, how Biden had made similar crack about uh, Obama back in 2008. Yeah, and I think you were you were at that dinner back then, but uh, uh, Biden comes into the arena, and the Obama clearly has the most people there. I think it wasn't even uh, as big of a venue back then. It was a it was no, it wasn't hall in, in Des Moines. Yeah. And he greets the Obama section by saying, hello, Chicago, right? Yes. Kind of dig at, these aren't Iowans, you brought these folks in. But what it ends up, uh, you know, how many of them were from Iowa versus Chicago? In the end, it was was ultimately very clear that Obama had an unprecedented grassroots operation in Iowa and and was a big part of launching his... uh, his campaign toward the presidency well yeah i mean and and as you point out there's plenty of spin with these events um but it's it's uh, you know there's the political spin the candidate spin but there's also the fact that you you know you these candidates do have to make a showing uh they they they, i mean it's not just for the media they have to make a showing and uh that's why it's incumbent upon them to have these kind of uh grassroots organizations or 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 well-organized organizations that encompass getting grassroots supporters to uh to to show up yeah and i think it's it's particularly important this time around because so many you know i've talked to dozens and dozens and dozens, probably hundreds, I guess, actually, of voters in Iowa over over the course of the year. And, you know, they all have their issues. But, I mean, top almost among everybody is they want somebody who can beat Donald Trump. And so being able to show that you're viable, that you can run a really smart campaign, that you can get a lot of people to your events, that you can get people excited, you know, folks are looking for that, someone who's going to have that energy in the fall to drive, to drive turnout, to get people motivated uh, to vote for somebody against Donald Trump. And so 
um, I think that it takes on even even more weight, perhaps this time around, than it than it has in the in the in the past. We're speaking with Bill Ruthart, my Tribune colleague. We're talking about Iowa, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Bernie Sanders, and the rest of the field. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pierce from the Chicago Tribune. Joined on the phone by my Tribune colleague, Bill Ruthart. We're talking about uh, the state of play in Iowa. We're talking about that fundraising event uh, for uh, Iowa Democrats with the major candidates. Uh, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg actually leveraged it into a campaign commercial. I am running to be the president who will pick up the pieces of our divided nation and lead us toward real action. We will fight when we must fight. But I will never allow us to get so wrapped up in the fighting that we start to think fighting is the point. The point is what lies on the other side of the fight. The hope of an American experience defined not by exclusion, but by belonging. I'm Pete Buttigieg and I approve this message. So just a flavor of uh, some of the advertising going on in Iowa. But, uh, you know, now, uh, Bill, we get this word that uh, we've got Michael Bloomberg uh, dissatisfied with the moderate faction, Joe Biden, uh, and, and figures he needs to weigh in. I'm not exactly sure how uh, in this time of uh, Democrats arguing about income inequality, you have uh, a billionaire like Bloomberg saying, well, maybe I need to step in and fix this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I don't know what he thinks his path is, but it's got to be a difficult one to clear at this point. I mean, it sounds like he's going to forego the first four early states and then get in the campaign, you know, right around Super Tuesday in terms of being on the ballot. Um, you know, he not only has the income inequality issue, but, you know, you have, uh, African Americans are, are a huge voting block within the Democratic Party, and you've got stop and frisk that happened on his watch in New York. Um, it, it just seems, uh, you know, hard to envision exactly where his support comes from. Uh, but I guess it's upper income, moderate voters who aren't ha- don't think Joe Biden can get the job done, and don't think uh, Pete Buttigieg uh, is is ready to be president. Uh, but I don't know if that's a big enough group of people to to really make uh, some serious headway. Jeff Bezos, I saw, encouraged him to get in. So, you know, I just well, there mean, you go. Well, I just mean, you know, I, I mean, can you see Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders? The billionaires are worried about us. Look, they've got Michael Bloomberg running. This shows that we're for real. Actually, <laughs> actually, that was Elizabeth Warren's uh, uh, fundraising email yesterday, I believe. Was so, so in, in, in case so, in case you missed it, blah blah blah. Here you go. Uh, We've got a call from Ron about the issue about health care. Ron, thanks, as always, for joining the Sunday Spin. Yes, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, you know, Bill, I think that the health care is still going to be one of the primary issues. But in addition to that, regarding the, the, the economy, because the president is going to run on that, if there's some kind of narrative that the Democrats can present as far as this economy, we hear a lot about the gig economy and stuff, but it, is there some kind of way they can at least talk about the economy and gain some attention? Thanks, guys. Thank you, Ron. Yeah, Ron, that's a good question. I mean, I think what we're hearing, the economy certainly isn't 
among even the top three or four issues that these candidates are talking about. They are, they would rather talk about uh, health care and income, income equality and, and uh, education issues. However, when you do hear them get around to it, I think what they say is, yeah, unemployment may be low, but let's look at the, the kind of jobs people are working these days. You know, it's they have to work two and three minimum wage jobs to get by or – uh, the benefits aren't what they used to, or salaries, their wages are depressed. Uh, it's tougher to organize in, in some of these states with unions. I think these are some of the issues uh, that they talk about. And I think, you know, that resonates, particularly in some of these rural areas where, you know, folks maybe just aren't quite seeing uh, the, the boost from the economy that, that, you know, folks in places like Chicago and New York might. Um, but it'll be interesting to see that I think, you know, whoever emerges as a candidate to, to face Trump is going to have to have a real strategy on that because you're right, the, the, the president's going to point to the Dow Jones and he's going to point to uh, unemployment. Uh, but I do think there's a message that will resonate with folks uh, as we've seen, you know, wages in, in, in some industries kind of stagnate while these CEOs uh, do just bring in record profits. Plus, I think also, you know, more more localized to, to Iowa would be uh, the issue of the, the status of the farm economy. Well, absolutely. I mean, and, and actually you can apply that to Wisconsin and, and to a lesser extent Michigan, uh, where, uh, you know, the trade war with China has, uh, you know, soybeans rotting in bins in some of these states, uh, and, and the markets are all over the place, and then there's tariffs on, on, on some of these products that folks in these states uh, produce. So it, it gets complicated uh, quickly, even down to E85 biofuels and some of the policies the, presidents have done, the president has done there that, that hasn't made folks happy. So um, I think there's a lot of different ways uh you know, these arguments can be made depending on the state, especially in some of these swing states. Do you think, you know, given the talk, and I'm not saying that it's a wise strategy because I've heard other candidates talk about bypassing early states before, but, I mean, given what you saw, for, for example, at the former J.J. dinner, uh, has Iowa lost any of its luster as that first-in-the-nation caucus state? I mean, I, I don't think it has among Iowans, obviously. They love it, right? And, in fact, you know, uh, the candidates to talk about eliminating the Electoral College, Pete Buttigieg being one of them, you, you, you talk to voters afterwards, they, they groan about that, right, because that would reduce the importance of Iowa. And, and uh, you know, the candidates would just go campaign where, where the most people are. Um, I, you know, I still think Iowa matters a lot, and I think that um, – Momentum matters in presidential races, and each one of those first four states, Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, Nevada, and South Carolina, um, those are major moments in the campaign uh, where, you know, you get out to that early lead, uh, whoever it is in those four states, it matters because it's, you know, this is an exercise in, in collecting delegates in these places, especially with, you know, if you have a field that still has, you know, three, four, five candidates after those early states, um, it's kind of a war of attrition, and whoever gets the leg up early is, is going to have an advantage. I mean, we saw that uh, last time with Hillary Clinton. You know, she got a leg up in delegates early, and while Bernie did well and won some, you know, some surprising victories in places like Michigan and competed very closely in Illinois, he just there was never enough delegates for him to to, to make up, you know, catch and make up the lead. Of course, there was the issue of super delegates that held more emphasis back then too, and and made it more difficult for uh, for Sanders to compete with the establishment. But uh, I think those those early states still matter, and Iowa being the first is 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 arguably the most important of them all. I think you make a very good point. And and while 
the caucus itself doesn't decide directly the delegates it leads to a cumbersome process that eventually leads to delegates but it is it's all about the delegates and very important as we get to the filing deadlines of these states that you know these projected front runners um, see if they've got a full slate of delegates filed because it's all about counting the delegates that's bill ruthart tribune political reporter my colleague on the political team thank you so much for joining me this morning Good to be on, Rick.